Hey everybody, welcome back to Who Knows. It's a podcast where I read things. Been reading a lot lately, so that's good for everybody. If you're new here, the whole purpose is to learn together because who knows, man. Um read a lot of nonfiction, read a lot of fiction, read a lot of a lot of everything. So if you haven't listened to anything before this episode, go ahead and go back and see if there's something else you like. Let me know if you have any suggestions on what to read. I am always open to them. And uh, I'll do my best to read them here. Uh, We always usually just get right into it. So here we go. We're going to be reading chapter six. We're starting part two in Ethics for the New Millennium by the Dalai Lama. Part two, Ethics and the Individual. Chapter six, The Ethic of Restraint. I believe that developing the compassion on which happiness depends demands a two-pronged approach. On the one hand, we need to restrain those factors which inhibit compassion. On the other, we need to cultivate those which are conducive to it. As we have seen, what is conducive to compassion is love, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, humility, and so on. What inhibits compassion is that lack of inner restraint which we have identified as the source of all unethical conduct. We find that by transforming our habits and dispositions, we can begin to perfect our overall state of heart and mind, the Kun Lung. That from which all our actions spring. The first thing, then, because the spiritual qualities conducive to compassion entail positive ethical conduct, is to cultivate a habit of inner discipline. I do not deny that this is a major undertaking, but at least we are familiar with the principle with the principle. For example, knowing its destructive potential, we restrain both ourselves and our children from indulging in drug abuse. However, it is important to recognize that restraining our response to negative thoughts and emotions is not a matter of just suppressing them. Insight into their destructive nature is crucial. Merely being told that envy, potentially a very powerful and destructive emotion, is negative cannot provide a strong defense against it. If we order our lives externally but ignore the inner dimension, inevitably we will find that doubt, anxiety, and other afflictions develop. And happiness eludes us. This is because unlike physical discipline, true inner or spiritual discipline cannot be achieved by force but only through voluntary and deliberate effort. In other words, conducting ourselves ethically consists in more than merely obeying laws and precepts. The undisciplined mind is like an elephant. If left to blunder around out of control, it will wreak havoc. But the harm and suffering we encounter as a result of failing to restrain the negative impulses of mind far exceed the damage a rampaging elephant can cause. Not only are these impulses capable of bringing about destruction of things, they can also be the cause of lasting pain to others and to ourselves. By this, I do not mean to suggest that the mind below is inherently destructive under the influence of a strongly negative thought or emotion the mind may seem to be characterized by a single quality 
But if, for instance, hatefulness were an unchangeable characteristic of consciousness, then consciousness must always be hateful. Clearly, this is not the case. There is an important distinction to be made between consciousness as such and the thoughts and emotions it experiences. Similarly, while at the time a powerful experience may overwhelm us, when we consider it later, we are unmoved. When very young, I used to become highly excited as the old year drew to a close. At the thought of Mon Lam Kemno, Kenmo, this was the great prayer festival which marked the start of the Tibetan New Year. In my capacity as Dalai Lama, I had an important role in this, which meant moving from the Potala to a set of rooms in the Jokang Temple, one of Tibet's holy shrines. As the day drew closer, I would spend more and more time daydreaming at the prospect, half terrified and half elated, and less and less time studying. My feelings of terror were caused by the thought of the long recital I had to give from memory during the main ceremony. My excitement by the thought of passing among the huge crowd of pilgrims and traders thronging, thronging the marketplace in front of the temple complex. Even though both of both the overexcitement and the aversion I felt were real enough then, today, of course, I can laugh at these memories. I am now quite used to crowds, and after so many years of practice, the recitation no longer troubles me. We can conceive the nature of mind in terms of the water in a lake. When the water is stirred up by a storm, the mud from the lake's bottom clouds it, making it appear opaque. But the nature of the water is not dirty. When the storm passes, the mud settles and the water is left clear once again. So although generally we may suppose mind or consciousness to be an inherent and unchangeable entity, when we consider it more deeply, we see that it consists in a whole spectrum of events and experiences. These include our sensory perception which engages with objects directly, as well as our thoughts and feelings, which are met mediated by language and concepts. It is also dynamic. Through deliberate engagement, we can affect changes in our mental and emotional states. We know, for example, how comfort and reassurance can help dispel fear. Similarly, those forms of counseling which led to greater awareness and affection can help alleviate depression. This observation that emotion and consciousness are not the same thing tells us that we do not have to be controlled by emotions. Prior to our every action, there must be a mental and emotional event to which we are more or less free to respond, although needless to say, until we have learned to discipline our mind, we will have difficulty in exercising this freedom. Again, how we respond to these events and experiences is moreover that which determines the moral content of our acts, generally speaking. In simple terms, this means that if we do so positively, keeping others' interests before us, our acts will be positive. If we respond negatively, neglecting others, our acts will be negative and unethical. According to this understanding, we might think of mind or consciousness in terms of a president or monarch who is very honest, very pure. In this view, our thoughts and emotions are like cabinet ministers. Some of them give good advice, some bad. Some have the well-being of others as their principal concern, others only their own narrow interests. The responsibility of the main consciousness, the leader, is to determine which of these subordinates gives good advice and which bad, which of them are reliable and which are not, and to act on the advice of the one sort and not the other. Mental and emotional events which in this sense give bad advice can themselves be described as a form of suffering. Indeed, we find that when they are allowed to develop any significant degree, the mind becomes swamped with emotion and we experience a kind of inner turbulence. 
This also has a physical dimension. In a moment of anger, for example, we experience a powerful disturbance of our habitual equilibrium, which can often be sensed by others. We are all familiar with the way in which the whole atmosphere is spoiled when just one member of the household is in a bad mood. When we become enraged, both people and animals tend to avoid us. Sometimes this turbulence is so strong that we find great difficulty containing it. This can cause us to lash out at others. In doing so, we externalize our inner turbulence. This is not to say that all feelings or emotions which cause us discomfort are necessarily negative. The primary attribute that, attribute that distinguishes ordinary emotions from those which undermine peace is its negative cognitive component. A moment of sorrow does not become disabling grief unless we hold on to it and add negative thoughts and imagings. In the case both of the overexcitement over I felt about those crowds of pilgrims and traders and the fear I had of the long recitation, there was an added cognitive component on top of the basic feeling. Through my somewhat obsessive daydreaming, my imagination superimposed something beyond the reality of the situation. And it was the stories I told myself about the upcoming event that undermined my basic serenity. Nor is all fear is like the childish one I have just described. There are occasions when we experience a more rational kind of fear. Far from being negative, this may actually be helpful. It can heighten our awareness and give us the energy we need to protect ourselves. On the first night of my escape from Lhasa in 1959, when I left home dressed as a soldier, I certainly felt this kind of fear. But because I had neither the time nor the inclination to think about it, it did not un unsettle me very much. Its main effect was to make me very alert. One could say that this was an instance of fear which was both justified and useful. The fear we feel in relation to a situation which is quite delicate or critical may also be justified. Here I am thinking of what we feel when we have to make a decision we know will have a significant impact on others' lives. Such fear may, may disconcert us somewhat. But the most dangerous and negative is that fear which is completely unreasonable and which can totally overwhelm and paralyze us. In Tibetan, we call such negative and emotional events Nyangmang, literally, that which afflicts from within, or as the term is usually translated, afflictive emotion. On this view, generally speaking, all those thoughts, emotions, and mental events which reflect a negative or uncompassionate state of mind, the Kung Lung, inevitably, determined, un or inevitably undermine our experience of inner peace. All negative thoughts and emotions such as hatred, anger, pride, lust, greed, envy, and so on, are considered to be afflictions in this sense. We find that these afflictive emotions are so strong that if we do nothing to counter them, though there is no one who does not value their life, they can lead us to the point of madness and even suicide itself. But because such extremes are unusual, we tend to see negative emotions as an integral part of our mind about which we can do very little. However, in failing to recognize their destructive potential, we do not see the need to challenge them. Indeed, far from doing so, we have a tendency to nurture and reinforce them. This provides them the ground to which to grow. Yet, as we shall see, their nature is wholly destructive. They are, very, they are the very source of unethical conduct. They are also the basis of anxiety, depression, confusion, and stress, which are such a feature of our lives today. Negative thoughts and emotions are what obstruct our most basic aspiration, to be happy and to avoid suffering, when we act under their influence, we become oblivious to the impact our actions have on others. 
They are thus the cause of our destructive behavior both towards others and to ourselves. Murder, scandal, and deceit all have their origin in afflictive emotion. This is why I say that the undisciplined mind, that is, the mind under the influence of anger, hatred, greed, pride, selfishness, and so on, is the source of all of our troubles, which do not fall into the category of unavoidable suffering, sickness, old age, death, and so on. Our failure to check our response to the afflictive emotions opens the door to suffering for both self and others. To say that when we cause others to suffer, we ourselves suffer, does not, of course, mean we can logically infer that in every instance, when, for example, I hit someone, I will be hit myself. The proposition I am making is much more general than this. Rather, I mean to suggest that the impact of our actions, both positive and negative, registers deep within us. If that is correct, on some level, we all have the capacity for empathy. It follows that for one individual to harm another, this potential must be overwhelmed or submerged in some way. Take the case of a person who cruelly tortures another. Their mind, the low, must be strongly gripped at the gross or conscious level by some kind of harmful thinking or ideology which causes them to believe their victim is deserving of such treatment. Such a belief, which to some degree must have been deliberately chosen, is what enables the cruel person to suppress their feelings. Nevertheless, deep down, there is bound to be some kind of effect. In the long run, there is a high degree of pro uh, probability that discomfort will be felt by the torturer. Consider in this context the example we looked at earlier of merciless dictators like Hitler and Stalin. It seems that as they neared the end of their lives, they became lonely, anxious, full of dread and suspicion, like crows afraid of their own shadows. Of course, the number of people who go to such extremes is very small, the impact of minor negative action is always much more subtle than major ones. So a less extreme example of the way in which negative actions cause suffering both to ourselves as well as others. Consider a child going out to play who gets into a fight with another child. Immediately after, the victorious child may experience a sense of satisfaction. But on returning home, that emotion will subside and a more subtle state of mind will manifest. At that point, a sense of unease sets in. We could almost describe this sort of feeling as a sense of alienation from self. The individual doesn't feel quite right. In the case of a child who goes out to play with a friend and shares an enjoyable afternoon with that playmate, afterwards, not only will there be an immediate sense of satisfaction, but when the mind has settled down and the excitement worn off, there will be a sense of calm and comfort. Another example of the way in which negative actions harm the one who indulges them can be seen in the context of an individual's reputation. Generally, it seems we humans, even for that matter, even we humans, even for that matter, animals, abhor meanness, aggressiveness, deceit, and so on. To me, this suggests that if we engage in activities which harm others, despite the temporary satisfaction we might gain thereby, people will at some point begin to look at us askance. They will become apprehensive of us, nervous and suspicious on account of our bad reputation. In time, we will start to lose friends. In this way, because a good in this way, because a good reputation is a source of happiness, we bring suffering on ourselves if we spoil it. Indeed, though, there may be a few exceptions. We find that if a person lives a very selfish life without concern for others' welfare, they tend to become quite lonely and miserable. Though they may be surrounded by people who are friends of their wealth or status, when the selfish or aggressive individual faces tragedy, not only do these so-called friends vanish, they may even secretly rejoice. 
and if, moreover, he or she is actively malicious, it is likely that when they die, they are not much missed. People may actually be glad, as many of the inmates of the Nazi death camps must have been at the subsequent execution of their captors. Conversely, we find that when people are actively concerned for others, they are much, res they are much respected, even venerated. When such people die, many mourn and regret their passing. Consider the case of Mahatma Gandhi. Despite a Western education and despite the opportunities this gave him to lead a comfortable life, he chose out of consideration for others to live in India almost as a beggar in order to devote himself to his life's work. Though his name is now just a memory, millions still draw comfort and inspiration from his noble deeds. As far as the actual cause of affliction, emotion is concerned, we can point to a number of different factors. These include the habit we all have of thinking of ourselves before others. We can also cite our tendency to project characteristics onto things and events above and beyond what actually is there, as in the example of mistaking the coiled rope for a snake. But beyond these, because our negative thoughts and emotions do not exist independently of other phenomena, the very objects and events we come into contact with play a role in shaping our responses. There is thus nothing which does not have the potential to trigger them. Anything can be a source of afflictive emotion. Not just our adversaries, but our friends and our most valued possessions, too, even our own selves. This suggests that the first step in the process of actually countering our negative thoughts and emotions is to avoid those situations and activities which would normally give rise to them. If, for example, we find we become angry whenever we meet a particular person, it may be best to keep away from them until we develop our internal resources more. The second step is to avoid the actual conditions which led to these strong thoughts and emotions. This however, this, however, presupposes that we have learned to recognize afflictive emotions as they arise in us. This is not always easy. While hatred is a very strong emotion when fully developed, in its beginning stages, the aversion we feel toward a particular object or event may be quite subtle. And even at their most advanced stages of development, afflictive emotions do not always manifest dramatically. The assassin may be relatively calm in the moment that he pulls the trigger. To this end, we need to pay close attention and be aware of our body and its actions, of our speech and what we say, and of our hearts and minds and what we think and feel. We must be on the lookout for the slightest negativity and keep asking ourselves such questions as, am I happier when my thoughts and emotions are negative and destructive or when they are wholesome? What is the nature of consciousness? Does it exist in and of itself, or does it exist in dependence on other factors? We need to think, think, think. We should be like a scientist who collects data, analyzes it, and draws the appropriate conclusion. Gaining insight into our own negativity is a lifelong task, and one which is capable of almost infinite refinement. But unless we undertake it, we will be unable to see where to make the necessary changes in our lives. Were we to expend even a fraction of the time and effort we consume in trivial activities, pointless gossip, and the like, on gaining insight into the actual nature of afflictive emotion, I believe it would have a huge impact on our quality of life. Both individuals and society would benefit. One of the first things we would discover is how destructive afflictive emotions are, and the more we develop an appreciation of their destructive nature, the more dis disinclined we would become to follow them. This alone would have a significant impact on our lives. Consider that not only do negative thoughts and emotions destroy our experience of peace, they also undermine our health. In the Tibetan medical system, anger is a primary source of many illnesses. 
including those associated with high blood pressure, sleeplessness, and degenerative disorders, a view which seems increasingly accepted in all allopathic medicine. Another childhood memory illustrates the way in which affective, afflictive emotions harm us. When I was a teenager, one of my favorite pastimes was tinkering with the old cars that my predecessor, the 13th Dalai Lama, had acquired not long before he died in 1933. There were four of them, two baby Austins of British manufacture, a Dodge, and a beat-up Jeep, both of American origin. Together, they comprised almost the only powered vehicles in Tibet. For the young Dalai Lama, these dusty relics held an irresistible attraction, and I longed to have them running again. My secret dream was actually to learn to drive, but it was only after a lot of pestering of various government officials that finally I found someone who knew anything about cars. This was La Lakpa Tsering, who came from Kalimpong, a town just over the Indian border. One day, I recall I was working out of the engine of one of the cars when dropping his spanner, he shouted an oath and stood up abruptly. Unfortunately, he'd forgotten the hood open above him and he hit his head with a terrible crack. But then to my great surprise, instead of extracting himself carefully, he became further enraged and straightening up and hit, hit his head even harder a second time. For a moment, I stood astonished at these antics. Then I found I could not stop laughing. Lapkad Sering's outburst resulted in nothing more than two generous bruises. That was merely unfortunate for him, but from this, we see how the afflictive emotions destroy one of our most precious qualities, namely our capacity for discriminative awareness. Robbed of what enables us to judge between right and wrong, to evaluate what is likely to be of lasting benefit and what of merely temporary benefit to self and others, and to discern the likely outcome of our actions, we are no better off than animals. Small wonder that under their influence, we do what ordinarily we would never consider doing. This obliteration of our critical faculties points to another negative characteristic of this type of mental and emotional event. Afflictive emotions deceive us. They seem to offer satisfaction, but they do not provide it. In fact, although, some, in fact, although such emotions comes to us in the guise of a protector, as it were, giving us boldness and strength, we find that this energy is essentially blind. Decisions taken under its influence are often a source of regret. More often than not, such anger is actually an indication of weakness rather than of strength. Most people have experienced an argument deteriorating to the point where one person becomes verbally abusive, a clear sign of the fragility of their position. Moreover, we do not need anger to develop courage and confidence. As we shall see, it can be done through other means. The afflictive emotions also have an irrational dimension. They encourage us to suppose that appearances are invariably consumerate with reality, or commensurate with reality. When we become angry or feel hatred, we tend to relate to others as if their characteristics were immutable. A person can appear, appear to be objectionable from the crown of their head to the soles of their feet. We forget that they, like us, are merely suffering human beings with one with the same wish to be happy and to avoid suffering as we ourselves. Yet common sense alone tells us that when we force, that when the force of our anger diminishes, they are sure to seem a little better at least. The same is true in reverse when individuals become infatuated. The other appears to be wholly desirable until such time as the grip of afflictive emotion subsides and they come to seem a little less than perfect. Indeed, when our passions become so strongly aroused, there is considerable danger of going to the opposite extreme. 
The individual, once idolized, now seems despicable and hateful, though of course it is the same person throughout. The afflictive emotions are also useless. The more we give in to them, the less room we have for our good qualities, for kindness and compassion, and the less able we are to solve our problems. Indeed, there is no occasion when these disturbing thoughts and emotions are helpful either to ourselves or to others. The more angry we are, the more people shun us. The more suspicious we are, the more people cut off, the more cut off from people we become, and thus more lonely. The more lustful we are, the less we are able to develop proper relationships with others, and again, the more lonely we become. Consider the individual whose activities are directed principally by the afflictive emotion, or to put it another way, by gross attachments and aversions, by greed, arrogance, ambition, and so forth. Such a person may become very powerful and very famous. Their name may even go down in history. But after they die, their power is gone and their fame is no more than an empty word. So what do they really achieve? Nowhere is the useful, nowhere is the uselessness of afflictive emotion more obvious than in the case of anger. When we become angry, we stop being compassionate, loving, generous, forgiving, tolerant, and patient altogether. We thus deprive ourselves of the very things that happiness consists in. And not only does anger immediately destroy our critical faculties, it tends towards rage, spite, hatred, and malice, each of which is always negative because it is a direct cause of harm for others. Anger causes suffering. At the very least, it causes the pain of embarrassment. For example, I have always enjoyed repairing, uh, repairing watches, but I can recall a number of occasions as a boy when completely losing my patience with those tiny, intricate parts. I picked up the mechanism and smashed it down on the table. Of course, later I felt very sorry and ashamed of my behavior, especially when, as on one occasion, I had to return the watch to its owner in a condition worse than it was before. This story, trivial in itself, also makes the point that though we may have an abundance of material wealth, good food, fine furnishings, a nice television set, when we become angry, we lose all inner peace. We no longer enjoy even our breakfast. And when it becomes habitual, we may never, we may be ever so learned rich, or powerful, but others will simply avoid us. They will say, oh yes, he is very clever, but he has such bad moods, you know, and people will keep away. Or they will say, yes, she is extraordinarily talented, but she gets upset so easily, you had better watch out. Just as when a dog is always growling and showing his teeth, we are cautious of those whose hearts are disturbed by anger. We would rather forego their company than risk an outburst. I do not deny that, as in the case of fear, there is a kind of raw anger that we experience more as a rush of energy than as a cognitively enhanced emotion. Conceivably, this form of anger could have positive consequences. It is not possible to imagine anger at the sight of injustice which causes someone to act altruistically. The anger that causes us to go to the assistance of someone who is being attacked in the street could be characterized as positive. But if this goes beyond meeting the injustice, if it becomes personal and turns into vengefulness or maliciousness, then danger arises. When we do something negative, we are capable of recognizing the difference between ourselves and the negative act. But we often fail to separate action and agent when it comes to others. This shows us how unreliable is even apparently justified anger. Should it still seem too much to say that anger is an entirely useless emotion, we can ask ourselves if anyone ever says anger can bring happiness no one does. What doctor prescribes anger as a treatment for any disease? There isn't one. Anger can only hurt us. It has nothing to recommend it. Let the reader ask himself or herself, when we become angry, do we feel happy? Does our mind become calmer and our body relaxed? 
Or rather, is it not that we feel tense in the body and unsettled of mind? If we are to retain our peace of mind and thereby our happiness, it follows that alongside a more rational and disinterested approach to our negative thoughts and emotions, we must cultivate a strong habit of restraint in response to them. Negative thoughts and emotions are what cause us to act unethically. Furthermore, because affliction, emotion, afflictive emotion is also the source of our own internal suffering, in that it is the basis of frustration, confusion, insecurity, anxiety, and the very loss of self-respect, which undermines our sense of confidence, Fail, failure to do so means that we will remain in a state of perpetual mental and emotional discomfort. Inner peace will be impossible. In place of happiness, there will be insecurity. Anxiety and depression will never be far away. Some people feel that although it may, it may be right to curb those feelings of intense hatred, which can cause us to be violent and even to kill, we are in danger of losing our independence when we restrain our emotions and discipline the mind. Actually, the opposite is true. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like their counterparts of love and compassion, anger and the afflictive emotions can never be used up. They have rather a pro propensity to increase like a river flooding in summer when the snow melts, so that far from being free, our minds are enslaved and rendered helpless by them. When we indulge our negative thoughts and feelings, inevitably we become accustomed to them. As a result, gradually we become more prone to them and more controlled by them. We become habituated to exploding in the face of or displeasing circumstances. Inner peace, which is the principal characteristic of happiness and anger, cannot coexist without undermining one another. Indeed, negative thoughts and emotions undermine the very cause of peace and happiness. In fact, when we think properly, it is totally, totally illogical to seek happiness if we do nothing to restrain angry, spiteful, and malicious thoughts and emotions. Consider that when we become angry, we often use harsh words. Harsh words can destroy friendship. Since happiness arises in the context of our relationships with others, if we destroy friendships, we undermine one of the very, the very conditions of happiness itself. To say that we need to curb anger and our negative thoughts and emotions does not mean that we should deny our feelings. There is an important distinction to be made between denial and restraint. The latter constitutes a deliberate and voluntary adopted discipline based on the, an appreciation of the benefits of doing so. This is very different from the case of someone who suppresses emotions, such as anger, out of a feeling that they need to present a facade of self-control or out of fear of what others may think. Such behavior is like closing a wound which is still infected. Again, we are not talking about rule following. Where denial and suppression occur, there is, in my view, a danger that in doing so, the individual stores up anger and resentment. The trouble here is that at some future point, they may find they cannot contain these feelings any longer. In other words, there are, of course, thoughts and emotions which it is appropriate, even important, to express openly, including negative ones, albeit there are more or less appropriate ways to do so. It is far better to confront a person or situation than to hide our anger away, brood on it, and nurture resentment in our hearts. Yet if we indiscriminately express negative thoughts and emotions simply on the grounds that they must be articulated, there is a strong possibility for all the reasons I have given that we will lose control and overreact. 
Thus, the important thing is to be discriminating, both in terms of the feelings we express and in how we express them. As I understand it, genuine happiness is characterized by inner peace and arises in the context of our relationships with others. It therefore depends on ethical conduct. This in turn consists in acts which take all others, consistent acts which take others' well-being into account. What obstructs us from engaging in such compassionate conduct is afflictive emotion. If then we wish to be happy, we need to curb our response to negative thoughts and emotions. This is what I mean when I say that we must tame the wild elephant that is the undisciplined mind. When I fail to restrain my response to afflictive emotion, my actions become unethical and obstruct the causes of my happiness. We are not talking about attaining Buddhahood here. We are not talking about achieving union with God. We are merely recognizing that my interests and future happiness are closely connected to others and learning to act accordingly. stuff guys so that's it for this episode uh thanks for coming and okay bye